Hey, welcome to the Bomb Squad podcast. Um, I'm Ethan, and with me I have... Austin. Brandon. Joseph. Tim. And today we're going to be talking about the uh, Daft Punk Leiji Matsumoto collaboration uh, Interstellar 4 or 5, uh, the science fiction film scored by their Discovery album. And it's pretty, you know, with recent news of uh, Daft Punk sort of uh, parting ways, disbanding, um, seemed particularly relevant that we talk about this film. But, you know, we all have voices. I'm actually curious. Um, we can, you know, just go down the line. I- I'm approaching this more as like an anime guy um, and a Leiji Mats- Matsumoto guy. But I'm curious, like, what everyone's relationship to the film is. So um, I guess Austin... Yeah. Upon my most recent viewing of this film, I found it to be deeply sad. I can't seem to divorce it in my mind from Daft Punk's recent parting. But uh, it, it, was, it also influenced generally my attitude towards anime because of when I saw this in my life. And it's a pretty unique looking animated film. Uh, it's got a sort of painterly aesthetic to it. And it's a really good time running it like an hour and six minutes. So I was happy to revisit it also because Discovery is Daft Punk's best album. I like the way the music ties into what you see on the screen. I like the way that um, it, you know, that you could definitely tell that the the movie itself was made around the music. And I love the way uh, some of the emotional moments hit uh, in, in a lot of the a lot of the works and a lot of the um, when when they come to Earth, the moments there. It's it's always stuck with me as this like really awesome emotional piece. That's that's always been close to my heart, kind of like uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall, only, I guess, less depressive. <laughs> you mentioned The Wall, Brandon. I was getting a lot of vibes watching watching this again. Uh, I was thinking about The Wall a little bit, and you're right. It is, it, it's kind of like that, but a lot less depressing. Yeah. I, I, I think it's safe to say that out of everyone here, I am the least, uh, what's, what's a good word for it? Weeaboo. Well, sure, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not that big into anime. It's not my thing. I, I, I tried. I just could never get into it. Same, actually. So uh, for me, I, especially around high school and even still to this day, I, I'm just a huge fan of Daft Punk's music. And I honestly really love their music. Uh, that They were like a huge influence on me in high school. Still are to this day, and uh, I just kind of did some research and discovered that they had a couple of movies under their belts, and that's how I discovered this movie. So, yeah, I I would say my relationship is similar to Ethan's. uh, I'm a big anime fan, and uh, this was something that um, caught my eye, and I enjoyed it a lot. I actually was not really super big on Daft Punk until recently. Like I I didn't dislike them or anything. I just hadn't really gone into listening to them, but I just kind of recently decided to in the spirit of their parting, decided to kind of binge their discography on Spotify. And yeah, they, they have a lot of really good stuff. And I think listening to their stuff really helped me appreciate the movie more upon second viewing because I kind of picked up on some stuff like towards the end. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that later. But um, I recently had a friend of mine. Uh, he, he came across a recording of the Toonami broadcast Midnight Run Special Edition, 
which was a night where they played all music videos. So they opened with uh, some of their own music videos set to their shows with music by um, Joe Boyd Visual. And they, they played a couple of music videos with that stuff. Then they played a block of Gorillaz music videos. They had a music video by an artist named Kenna. The song was called Hellbent. It was like a weird uh, claymation thing. It was pretty neat. But the highlight of the night was really that they were playing the first four videos from Intercell 4-5. And uh, this, this was a big deal for Toonami because it was like the one, it was the only time that they've done a night of music videos that didn't have any of their shows but it's also a big deal because it was the world premiere of harder better faster stronger so that's pretty significant so i thought i thought it was cool to be able to watch the recording of when that actually aired and just kind of see what that looked like when that event premiered watching the commercials from 2001 were odd to say the least, but I love going back into the time capsule and seeing that kind of stuff. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I still haven't seen that, that original broadcast because they mentioned actually in like a contemporary interview um, that only like four videos were done at the time, only a few of them. So I guess that was mid-production even that they, they premiered. Yeah, that, that makes sense because, I mean, yeah, they, they only showed those four. Yeah, and then the the later premiere for everything else. That'd be, that's really interesting, actually. Um, for me, and yeah, and seeing it in that context of you know being a tsunami, uh, a premiere event. That's always interesting. It, it being it there might that much pomp and circumstance for something, um, especially you know right. like when when anime was first first really catching into the mainstream. I think uh, for for me, I, I approach this primarily as someone who used to um, you know who grew up watching a lot of a lot of Leiji Matsumoto stuff. More than anything, um, I watched the Galaxy Express 3.9 films as a kid, and um, I was a big uh, Star Blazers fan growing up. Um, and, you know, eventually I, I would watch Space Battleship Yamato and that sort of thing. So, and, and Captain Harlock, of course, uh, both, you know, Space Pirate and um, Arcadia of My Youth. So, of course, I, I walked into it with some level of familiarity with his work. Um, and that, and I do like Daft Punk, you know, especially their, um, their first couple albums, uh, Discovery and uh, Homework. And um, I really, you know, and even their, even their later stuff, of course, I, I like Ram and um, Human After All. But, you know, Discovery, I think, probably stands as, as my, my favorite. So it was it was a great blend, but I, I really like the approach because it feels very much like a Matsumoto story. Um, like, like you guys were saying, like uh, Brandon and Austin especially were, you know, emphasizing was it's a very emotional sort of film. Um, it's, you know, about concrete things in their times when it doesn't quite make sense and it's this this semi semi mystical thing um that also positions itself in uh in in a science fiction context uh which is you know it's extremely matsumoto um if you're familiar with any of his work so it definitely like despite it not being based really on any any previous matsumoto piece it feels like a matsumoto work um even more so than like a lot of the stuff that was because there were a lot of adaptations of his work in the 90s and um early 2000s uh, there was sort of a renaissance, but um, a lot of it is of pretty mixed quality. Um, I, I would say it sort of stands out. And then the animation visuals, like despite being early digital animation, it looks looks very impressive. But we'll we'll get into that, this sort of weird, interesting film moving forward. This mainly just came about because the, the album was finished. It wasn't made in conjunction with the, the animation. It was the album was finished, and then they wanted to make an animated film to go along with it. And everything was sort of set to 
that. Is there anything in particular you guys wanted to talk about production-wise that uh, caught your eye or just about, you know, the development of the film? I have, I have a bone to pick with the, the general state of this release because uh, having seen this since I was very young and uh, getting to see lots of things I, I never... I never dreamed that I would see, especially in higher resolution. Uh, I feel like if we could get the alternate ending of Frank Oz's Little Shop of Horrors, uh, that used to be just a DVD extra that, fun fact, got leaked out on a DVD and wasn't supposed to. I think that Little Shop of Horrors was the first DVD to be recalled in America because somebody from, I think, Warner Brothers, somebody put out uh, the version with the alternate ending on it, this little low-res, you know, interlaced version of it in black and white with unfinished effects and uh over the course of my lifetime we were able to get that in 1080p in color with some of the effects done and yet this thing that i saw plastered all over my childhood on tv i've I've seen these music videos my whole life and the best thing that we have to work with right now is a blu-ray that i don't even think was released in in this region in america mm-hmm. and it's an upscaled port of the dvd release you frequently find people online telling you to just buy the dvd instead of the blu-ray although the blu-ray does have really good dolby 5.1 sound and that is just something i cannot believe happened considering toei did this i would like to see this remastered someday uh because going back to watch it, my only complaint was there were some a lot of shots where you could you got very clear definition on what you were looking at, but then every time that it would pan around, you know, like anytime they'd use like digital techniques or camera techniques to zoom around, anything that would get messed up by interlacing, it it, it just looks like garbage. Yeah, it look it looks very muddy, um, particularly on those pans. There's some weird aliasing issues um, on the uh, on the line line art. Um, and and you say that, but I extremely believe that Toei put this out because that's super on brand for them. Um, they they do that a lot. Where like I remember Horus Prince of the Sun. It's on Blu-ray over here, but it was just an upscale job for years. You couldn't get like their Golden Age films in any high quality. I think. It was this for years. It was only a terrible DVD of a Little Prince and the Eight Headed Dragon. Um, they just put out a Blu-ray last year. I want to say um, last February, uh, February twenty uh, twenty, and it's you know one of their iconic. And before that, it was a, just a useless, just pug ugly um, DVD copy of it. And they they always have weird stuff when importing works. Like I know our versions of Sailor Moon are of inferior quality to the Japanese because a lot of it is like a, they don't want people reverse importing things. Um, but hopefully with them doing those Blu-rays of their, like their Golden Age stuff um, and with, you know, there being a bit more interest in Daft Punk now, especially, we might be able to see something come out of it. They might be, their hand might be pushed and they might be like, hey, we could make enough money if we actually bothered. Yeah, I mean, Toei has definitely done that before. Like, I have a friend who anytime any release of, dbz comes out he's just like examining it under a microscope and he's like nope it's it's a little bit too cropped it's got some smudgy uh it's, it's not good uh yeah i noticed it, i i had not watched sailor moon until recently but like whenever i'm watching it on hulu i noticed the coloring is a little odd and i i guess that might be what's going on there mm-hmm yeah, it's purely the masters that they were pro- that um, that Aviz was prov- were provided. There, there are lots of comparisons to the Japanese release and other international releases. Like the Italian release is generally considered one of the best, I believe. Ho- hopefully, hopefully they do 
do a good Blu-ray release of Interstellar 4.5 in the not-too-distant future. Discotech, we we promoted you before. Now, now we ask you for a favor. Release this movie. God. Please, uh, if you can, if you can manage, if you can get it from Toei, because I know that's uh, no nothing against Toei. They've just always been a bit a bit strange about rights stuff. There was a period in the past where Toei didn't even acknowledge this movie on their website. Yeah, stuff like that. They've they've always been weirdly restrictive about things, uh, and I, I've never quite gotten it. But you know, it's it's their prerogative. It's their company. Whatever. But getting out of getting out of release stuff, I mean, that is that is a fair fair point because it does affect your your viewing experience, um, particularly with early digital stuff. But I think Interstellar is this really compelling science fiction film. When you get down to the uh, the, the larger narrative of it, it's not particularly like there's not a whole there's not too much depth there. It's not the most complex sort of narrative, but it you know it's it it works to. Uh, emotional ends more than anything like it, it feels correct um which is what's most important yeah and and that's that's what it needs yeah yeah and um for those who like aren't super familiar with it or that sort of thing just like a quick rundown of it is it's about four members of an extraterrestrial pop group that are uh, kidnapped by the evil uh, earl de darkwood and they're they're taken back to earth where they're brainwashed and made into uh pop singers um, until they are rescued by uh, Shep, the heroic space officer. You know, your your Captain Harlock, your Susamu Kodai, your insert name of uh, guy that looks like that from <laughs> X, Leiji Matsumoto property. And until he's fatally wounded, um, and it's up to the rest of the uh, the band to defeat the evil uh, Earl de Darkwood and make it back home. That's that's basically the plot in a nutshell. But of course, it's, it's all scored by... Um, by uh, Daft Punk music, specifically their Discovery album, and it's there's no dialogue throughout, um, which is what makes it really compelling. It makes it a very universal sort of film. You don't need any subtitles or anything to understand what's going on. But I'm, I'm curious, what are your guys' thoughts on the film itself now that we've kind of run down the plot real quick? Or if you have any commentary on the narrative and how, your opinion, your feelings of it, or any individual moments. If there's this Earl with this money to travel between dimensions, and he's got enough technology and enough money to do that why is he trying to get a space beaver okay i guess that's a big plot point is they're trying to um get a bunch of golden records to stick in this giant machine that'll do presumably do some some evil that'll cast the world into darkness or or destroy the planet or whatever xyz i don't know why specifically gold records because like again it's it's something that you know like if you think about it for 10 seconds it's like that's kind of goofy but that's again kind of on brand for matsumoto um there's a lot of stuff that in his works that are silly but um i appreciate that the work itself doesn't treat it as silly so that that's really the like he's a part of an evil cult yeah it's that weird mystical angle that sort of crops up and this, um, the way he turns into energy is, is sort of reminiscent of uh, like Queen Prometheum from uh, the Galaxy Express 3-9 um, and her, her planet body, um, how, it, how it plays with mystical energies coexisting in this science. Like, and it's a pure sidebar. Like it, like it kind of comes out of nowhere almost. Um, but it works. Again, um, I, I like it. It adds flavor to the piece. <laughs> One thing that I heard a couple of people note uh, mind you, I am not that familiar with Leji Matsumoto, except for all that I've managed to absorb through osmosis by being around you for the past month or so. Uh, one thing that you can put together after viewing this film enough times is uh, sort of all of the characters in it are, are written from a standpoint 
that people are inherently good. Everybody's trying to, like, uh, like say, for instance, the, the villain of this film, the Earl de Darkwood. Uh, he is trying to control the universe by accumulating 5,555 gold records. And the source of that need for control is because his parents were killed in a chaotic way, like, like a meteor smashing into his house. There are external factors that lead people to doing wrong in this movie, but everybody always wants to sort of try to do something. These varying degrees of noble stuff, uh, like, you know, they've got the noble sacrifice of Shep. And uh, even when Earl de Darkwood is defeated and he's about to fall into a pit to his demise, Arpeggius tries to grab him and save him and doesn't even really try to let go. He just loses his grip. And that's one thing that adds to the music video fun of this is that underneath all the events of the film, there, I think there's an artist who inherently views people as good. And that sort of fits in with the... Uh, you know, music videos are a party. It's a fun universe that you're dwelling in. And even if at its deepest, it still makes, you know, of the binary assumption of whether we're good or evil, it still leans in the direction of us being kind towards each other. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a thing in, in, um, in a number of Matsumoto works. There is a sense that uh, people are sort of a product of, of systems and that sort of thing. Um, particularly like a Galaxy Express 3.9, it's just not very subtle um, in its themes of of an aristocracy and you know people being born into wealth and that sort of giving them a certain distance and a lack of humanity it's literalized in the aristocracy literally making themselves robots a machine men um in in that case and you know he's not terribly subtle about those themes but there is you know a reason for why people end up the way they do when the world it's funny because it is the whole world when the world finds out that the crescendals have uh, been kidnapped from their planet and need to get back home uh, when the world finds out they're blue because they're they're not where they're supposed to be. They the entire world and all of its scientists and its world leaders stop everything to get them back home. That's another example of just this is a very optimistic view on humanity taking place in here. It's an optimistic sci-fi. And that's not something that you always uh, run into, especially these days as the actual world gets more dystopian. So it's, you know, fun to take a trip back to 2003. And I'll, I'll, another thing, uh, the it's it's sort of got that It Follows thing going on where I, I'm not sure the aesthetic portrayed in the movie is supposed to be slightly modern times for back in 2003, but with a lot of stuff taken from decades prior because this was based on a cartoon or cartoons that uh, Daft Punk had seen growing up, particularly made by uh, Leji Matsumoto. Yeah, the, um, the the aesthetics of the film in general are very, very Matsumoto in the sense of there's a lot of dials, there's a lot of... Um, no, I mean, you know, not just stuff contemporary to, like, the fashion and stuff. You see that, certainly, but the way mechanics, the science fiction of it is very sort of old-fashioned like the coke bottle sort of sides on the uh, space helmets you see and uh just the uh design work the way um he he does those like radar displays on every just coating the walls of everything um that's a very matsumoto sort of design and and because he was so influential on other artists um you very much see how that sort of perpetuated itself and then it makes it feel uh at times maybe older than it really is or nostalgic or really just unstuck in time 
in a way that um, it just all sort of melds together, um, which I think works. There's always a sense, it, like it, in uh, Matsumoto's work particularly, that time scales aren't important. Continuity, like there's a there's a universe sort of connecting his works, arguably, like the Leiji-verse, quote-unquote, but it's always so loose, and he has just so little care for how it actually fits together, um, just the same balance to it, that I, I think it, you know, it fits in the context of a Matsumoto work. Like, you know, for all we know, this could take place in the same world as Captain Harlock or whatever, and it would work fine with his really arbitrary rule set. I mean, I think it works pretty in, with a music video when you're in a format, when you're being so loose with it. Adds the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the the film as a whole is a lot of fun. It's sort of a nice little experimental anthology kind of thing. Like they were talking about the wall earlier, um, which like, I, and I know there there are more than just those two films that um, are like music video feature length film things. But like, I think it's a cool idea, and I think it's approached really well here because it's like a feature length narrative that just flows through all of the songs and that's something that i think is kind of cool and like austin was talking about the whole um optimistic aspect of it which really plays into the ending there's a lot to it and you think that's the one thing that stinks about this movie and it's you know is it's almost kind of hard to talk about at times um particularly the narrative of it because you know there's not like plot points that you can you can ruminate on like i guess there's the stuff with like earl the Darkwood, but again it's overall a pretty straightforward sort of film um you know just moves from thing to thing uh, the transitions between songs i think was really well handled is one thing i will note the uh, the way it just shifts between montage and into it like um the mood of each tracks, uh, each track rather. The uh, like the only one that stands out is maybe not super fitting. The scene it's in is maybe Verdi Quo, um, like because it seems like it's sort of low and ambient for for the big for a, a climactic sequence. Um, but a lot of it, like the shit, you know, the trans, especially those first four, like the ones that they showed on Toonami, the transition between One More Time and Aerodynamic is really really good. And of course, mm-hmm. the harder, um, harder, better, faster, stronger that 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 sequence is pro- probably the most iconic from the film probably because of association with the song but still i i think just the the visuals of it of people of them being brainwashed and made into humans um is something that sort of can stand on its own in its own way um and there there are a few like that yeah i think i think i would say the um aerodynamic sequence is probably my favorite cuz like you're just you're opening with this big concert and like everybody's having a good time and then it's like oh shit it's the cops we gotta run yeah exactly um you get um like the i i think yeah the transition it's a pretty hard cut it lulls you in with a a really good song um in one in the form of one more time um and it pretty immediately it does a good job of establishing sort of the state of things as they are before transitioning into aerodynamic which i think is important for this uh this narrative i've been thinking about the end of the movie and how at the very end it's just some kid asleep the whole movie was basically a dream yeah and that's got me thinking he's just sleeping listening to his daft punk albums yeah doesn't that make you think was earl the darkwood ever even there super smash bros logic (laughs) it's super smash brothers yeah yeah that was what I was kind of talking about with Austin bringing up how there's this there's this belief in the film that people are inherently good, and I think that that really plays well 
when we find out that the whole narrative is just through the perspective of a child having a dream with his toys and his Daft Punk album. Yeah. In a way, like, it really fits the theme of Daft Punk because... Uh, because they grew up watching Captain Harlock, like they mentioned in interviews, how um, how they one of their fav- favorites was Captain Harlock or uh, Albator, as they would have watched it. Um, likely, I, I think that sort of ties it together um, in that it's it, you know the, the child is Daft Punk in a way. One of the things that I actually really like about it is there's not a single ounce of dialogue in it. Nothing is really explained, and it's all just done like visually. The story is told visually. And they, they managed to do it in a way that it's just, like, perfectly, like, streamlined. It's very easy to follow. Like, even with all the absolute insane cartoonish animated stuff, like, going on, you, you get what's happening in it. Um, which, for, for a movie that's... Oh, sweet. <laughs> uh but yeah, for a movie that's going to go silent, like clarity is absolutely important. And I think that this movie really does it really well. Visually, I mean, it's a feast for the eyes. It's really, um, well, when it has to be, of course, it's like really bright, really colorful, which honestly kind of, it, it really helps uh, capture the feeling of the music, the uh, the use of colors and the animation. It, it's like very vibrant, um, it honestly just makes me feel good. I basically just kind of described this to uh, a girl on Tinder before um, watching the movie. The, the movie's a bop and a half, man. It It's fun. It's got fun sci-fi elements to it. Of course, the soundtrack's great because it's Discovery, which we, we, we were talking about this like right around the time that Daft Punk broke up. And I said um, at the time that I think Ra- Random Access Memories was my favorite Daft Punk album. I got to change that. Um, it's, it, yeah, no, it's discovery. Discovery's too freaking good. Mm-hmm. Um, ha- having the visuals to it Been saying that for years, <laughs> you know, having the visuals to it just kind of also just really reminded me just, my God, this, this music is so good, particularly with that opening, which is probably the closest I'm ever going to get to experiencing a Daft Punk concert. Cause God damn, did that concert look fun? We're going to celebrate. Yeah, and I think um, that's pretty natural transition too. Aha, uh-huh. to talking about the film's visuals, um, in that it it feels like a Toei joint. I'll give it that. Um, in that it, it's economic, certainly. Like it does look very pretty. Um, like the the drawing, like I particularly like the use of thick outlines, and there's a lot of really dynamic stuff done with uh, cinematography in terms of angles. But there's a certain economy. Like they they reuse a lot of animations from um, while panning. Particularly, I noticed in the opening concert sequence, you see um, uh, you see Barrel just smiling and slapping on his drum kit uh, on his drum set um, in the exact same way, like five or six times. They just recycle the animation. I think they they mirror it at one point, but they uh, they just move in a little bit in different. Po- it, it's not a it's not a problem. Um, but it is that sort of Toei thing where there's a certain economy, particularly with how many moving figures there are in the frame a lot of the time, particularly during those concert sequences, how, you know, every individual character is animated. Again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's some early digital jank in there too, with like the movement of um, uh, the spaceships, I notice in particular, the way they pan across the screen. Um, it feels a little unnatural, even compared to how um, how similar pan effects were done in traditional animation, um, like cell animation back in the day, because, um, you know, things weren't quite right. The scaling algorithm didn't work exactly how they wanted 
or just um, there there are a few sequences where I kind of think that they went a little overboard almost. Like they want to have every uh, like specu- like they have the reflection of the manor in the va- the van when they're doing a Scooby Doo bit going up to the Earl's manor, the manor to Darkwood or whatever um, in their the mystery machine. So I wasn't the only one getting Scooby-Doo vibes from that sequence. Yeah, I kind of loved it. With with Cowardly Barrel, <laughs> just kind of, or he just kind of sort of just trips all over himself. There, there's a few sequences where, where, like, the lighting, the way they do lighting effects, it's just a bit almost overbearing. And it, it feels, well, not overbearing, but kind of, just a bit much, or a bit kind of cheapo. But those are very, very few and far between, and it's probably just because I've seen this movie a lot that I even notice them quite so much. Obviously, the flaws are going, the few flaws are going to stand out. And overall, I think it is a very, very attractive film. And they do a lot of stuff to uh, to cover up any budgetary deficiencies. And they do a lot of interesting cinematography stuff um, that you know, people appreciate from animation. But I'm curious about like what you guys, like what some of you as uh, who maybe aren't as tuned in to animation stuff, what you guys think of it. Cause I could be a blowhard about it. See, I like the fact that I don't know much anime because I don't watch much anime. But... I, I know, because I, I had an older brother, right, that um, I know what classic or retro anime, I guess is what I'd call it, looks like. And it totally has that vibe to it. And I, I love the way that it looks because it looks like this retro anime, right? And I think that actually augments the music in my eyes. Yeah, because that because um, the sound of the of the piece is you know it's it's inspired by a lot of a lot of disco stuff like about a lot of old French disco and that sort of thing because you know house music is that sort of natural evolution so I think it it, it definitely jibes with it um, it feels contemporaneous to the sound yeah on display the the line work isn't particularly detailed there's a part of me that's deeply suspicious that the reason it's been eighteen years and we still don't have a solid Blu-ray of this not made using AI is because somebody at the fucking production company thought, well, gee, this is going to be broadcast on MTV and Cartoon Network and in bowling alleys. So we're going to, you know, make some irreversible decisions in the pipeline right now. Because some uh, knowing er- early enough digital trickery to do, you know, uh, compositing elements together inside of whatever... I, maybe a silicon graphics machine they were using. Um, some of it, I was very, very suspicious of how they how they achieved certain camera moves and such and uh, zooms. I was hoping, just like, please tell me that you did this with like high resolution, hand painted elements, or you know that this wasn't some goofy little lens flare generated on some antiquated software, because it's it, it's it sometimes had that look to it. I think that they really, uh, like, like if there was something that got its back broken during production, it was the colors. Because, boy, are the colors in this doing a lot of heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Character designs from Matsumoto uh, are, you know, really fun for somebody who knows this as the Daft Punk movie and not as a thing in Matsumoto's lengthy career. I, I'm, I can't be the only person who had a crush on Stella as a child. Generally, I, I don't. I don't actually hate the way this looks, aside from like some very uh, general like resolution issues. I think I think all of it works together, or maybe that I've been distracted by the music. Other than you know, like I said in the beginning, the line work isn't particularly detailed. 
Yeah, and I, I think that that varies from scene to scene with the line art. Um, particularly, there, there are a few where um, it's pretty. It's not so great. Uh, I think that's an interesting take about the colors too, um, because I always that that always stands out to me is um, how relative. Like honestly, this one's really impressive. But like uh, early digital coloring tends to be more limited in the spectra, and there's like a lot of. Um, I noticed it. it. It might have just been the, the video quality too, the banding you get on some of the light sources and stuff in it. Um, I'm sure that was probably more of a video quality thing. But um, a lot of the color in early digital animation is pretty limited, and that's always been something that stands out to me watching it. But I, what is neat about Interstellar is it does not that issue doesn't crop up nearly as much as it does, and in, in, in a lot of contemporary uh, digitally animated Matsumoto stuff, it doesn't um, like Gun Frontier or. Um, uh, what was the other one? Super Submarine 99, stuff like that, uh, or Galaxy Railways. That's the other big one. It, the uh, digital animation is, uh, looks pretty darn good for the day, and uh, particularly with regards to color spectra. I think uh, what's interesting about the line art, though, is not just that um, I, I do admit, some, like, like what you were saying, is that it can be a little bit uh, minimalist. The uh, varying line weights uh, in it, particularly on the outlines, like the way they, they aren't really con- consistently thick or consistently thin. I think that has a lot of character to it going into minutia again, but I think that um, it, it captures a feeling because a lot of his mo- it, his manga had that quality and you really couldn't get that back in the day quite so much um, when you were doing uh, cell animation, when um, your inkers and painters were doing things traditionally or you were doing things on paper and you needed to preserve the line weight because if it, you know, if it moved too much, it would look weird in motion, but here it's you know that that effect of his uh, manga works is preserved very very well, um, which I, I like I appreciate in its own way. Even someone who's not a huge stickler for retention of the manga's original style. I, I hope that we can get a, a nice big crazy remastered, maybe just you know 1080 or hopefully 4K release of this because I think that people around our age, a lot of people are susceptible to that. We saw it on Toonami. We saw it as a child back when anime was just getting big and everyone was watching Dragon Ball Z. And I, I have sort of an, uh, a bias towards like, like liking this film a lot. I, I have strong emotions wrapped up in this because it's just such an early cartoon that came up in my life. And has it really influenced how much I like cartoons, what kind of cartoons I like. Hell, it influenced the people I dated over the years. So I know that there are going to be people not too much younger than us who probably didn't grow up with this, except for, say, like, maybe seeing it as a Daft Punk music video. Because, you know, I don't think Warner made any other music videos for any of these songs. And, uh... They're going to be, you know, a, a little bit less keen on it because they don't have all the backstory. And I do have confidence that if you give it a decent remaster, future generations will grow to like it without needing to be MK Ultra into liking it. I mean, I when when I first watched it and Shep died, I bawled my eyes out. That's a Matsumoto thing, right? The heroic sacrifice, that that noble stuff. Does that pop up a lot in his works? Yes, actually, quite frequently. Um, you see a lot of that stuff, like the first episode of uh, Space Battleship Yamato. Susamu Kodai's older brother sacrifices himself in one of the the last space cruisers. He goes to uh, to attack the enemy to give enough time for Captain Okita to flee. Um, at the end of every Galaxy Express movie, there's a big sacrifice. Um, you always get that noble sacrifice in Harlock, uh, Delio. The idea of, of giving oneself up for the greater good is a, is a common theme 
in a lot of his works. Um, so, you know, it, it fits pretty readily in where Shep sort of gives himself up. Because he is depicted as almost kind of older with his thicker eyebrows than um, the uh, the other equivalent, Arpeggius, who's sort of um, more standard young. Like, you know, obviously they're not as richly characterized as characters from a television series or a longer running manga. But um, he has sort of an older quality to him in his design work. Um, and usually those are the, the guys who will end up giving themselves up for the greater good in uh, Matsumoto works. Two things throughout the movie that uh, stick out as kind of like, say you're on LSD and you're looking at this, you feel like you're inside the creator's brain, are sort of the notion that Shep is a saint and Stella is always in some sort of danger. <laughs> because even, even at like an hour or six runtime, the amount of times they manage to make Shep look like this this noble hero who who can save the day with his his you know selflessness and the amount of times they make it all about Stella being in danger that was one of those things where it was like oh I, I've met you and I know all about you Mr. Matsumoto just because of the amount of times they pushed on that button that's not that's a that's a weird thing it, it crops up sometimes but usually the 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 woman in a lot of matsumoto works is is a mother figure for groups like like uh literally in galaxy express 39 um there's a character named maytel um but her name is sort of a mistranslation because i mean it's kind of funny now due to the cars films but uh meteru would be a more accurate translation or mater (laughs) um uh, because (laughs) because it, it was supposed to be a transliteration of the uh, the English word mother, but but instead they went with Maytel for most translations. Like even the old New World Pictures translation that Roger Corman did of that film goes with Maytel, and then every succeeding one sort of stuck with that. But it, but Stella is not. Stella is um is more of a, more of a damsel than than even the likes of uh, say Nova or uh, Yuki from Space Battleship Yamato or um the Millennial Queen in Queen Millennia. He, he has like his his women characters aren't necessarily incredibly strong um, all the time, but they they're usually the, this is the most damsely uh, I I've really seen them um, in one of his works except uh, maybe Arcadia of My Youth uh, that sort of thing, but even then they're a bit stronger, so, which is an interesting thing, interesting quality about this film. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of when I was editing a music video with Fleischer Superman footage and. Like halfway into the video, I noticed, okay, Superman has rescued Lois Lane three times and we're two minutes in. (laughs) I need to get some different footage. All right, there's a volcano. That's cool. What happened was Matsumoto pointed to that that early mock-up art of Stella with the blue skin and the blonde hair and said, Trust me, I've drawn this woman 10,000 times, and this is the one that's going to sell. I know this because my wife made Japanese Barbie. Jesus. Yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> Stella, yeah, what's interesting, too, is Stella's, um, like, the blue skin thing. That's actually going back to Space Battleship Yamato, is um, the aliens in that were all, all blue-skinned, frequently blonde-haired characters. The Gamelos, um, or the Gamelons, if you're a Star Blazers fan like I am. Which I, I never knew if that was intentional or not. Um, I don't think Starblazers or and Yamato were super huge in France. Um, and I've, I checked, I poked around to make sure. Um, but I, I haven't seen anything saying that that was the case. But I think it's just an interesting quirk. I like to imagine it's uh, an intentional thing because there are a couple little homages 
Um, well, at least one I know for sure because there's um, there's I swear there's a drummer who's supposed to be Deslock or a uh, Desler rather from uh, Yamato, and there's uh, uh, when Beryl uh, is um, tracking uh, Stella, uh, he he's wearing uh, Harlock uh, Harlock's like jacket, basically his his cape and a little ensemble. Which I thought was a cute thing, especially since he's, his design is sort of borrowed from um, the way uh, Matsumoto draws his potato people, which is what they're always called. Uh, and he, he's very reminiscent of like uh, Tochiro or um, particularly uh, uh, Tetsuro, um, Tochiro and Tetsuro from the Galaxy Express 3.9 or the, uh, the young protagonist from Queen Millennia who looks exactly like Tetsuro, basically. And uh, there are a few. Um, that's the difficulty with Matsumoto. It's hard to tell if he's trying to homage a particular character, if he's just going back to one of his old um, favorite designs. He, he does sort of... It's less pronounced than, say, uh, Osamu Tezuka's, because um, he, he uses what is called sort of a star system, where he repeats designs intentionally. Um, like, the idea is that they are actors who are being re- recast in a different role. It's it's a little bit because his he's a bit more haji podgy. He has a smaller cast of characters playing different roles, or characters that look pretty similar playing different roles. That sort of thing. Um, it's it's always been a bit less distinct than uh, Tezuka's star system, where all the characters were you can tell at a glance who's who, which actor they are really. But I but I still think it's fun to sort of pick out. It's a treat for fans of his work in particular to catch those few things but because it's not super fan servicey overall in terms of uh showing off little things from different ones i think you see uh one of the outfits when that's cycling through those um for barrel it's it's tochiro's from arcadia of my uh the arcadia of my youth series as um, endless orbit ssx uh, but that's the only one that really comes to mind and that's a that's an obscure one that's a reference to a, a canceled series wow that, uh, yeah, it only made it several episodes in, but by, the, by that point, SSX was sort of um, old hat. That's where my profile picture comes from on most uh, on uh, on Twitter, I think, right now. That's actually where my my name comes from on most social media platforms. Sundown McMoon is a reference to Tochiro's name in the god awful uh, New World Pictures dub of the Galaxy Express three nine. You're Sundown McMoon. That hat. Where'd you get it? Um, which is very funny. It is an absolutely hilarious dub. Um, Captain Harlock is dubbed as Captain Warlock, and he talks like John Wayne Pilgrim. Remember, I don't want him hurt. He must be returned to Earth safe. Someday we'll meet again, somewhere beyond the vast sea of stars. <laughs> Rules so hard. Um, Tetsuro is named uh, Joey Hanabana Kananda Banda Smith. Who are you, kids? Like, he just goes on and on. It's, like, ten syllables long. Uh, that dub is is a treasure. And that's actually a thing I wanted to get into. Um, I think part of the reason Le- Leiji Matsumoto worked so well is because people around the world recognize his work. Like, even in America and that sort of thing, people are, are probably, nine times, like, all, most countries his work has made it to. Like, all of his major works, um, in some capacity, have been released in English. Um, even if it's in like a limited capacity or like one episode or as a pilot sort of thing, 
like in America, you if you enjoyed anime, there were there was a high chance that you would watch a Matsumoto work. The problem was his work was just never presented in a particularly accurate way for years. Back in the day, um, in 78, actually, they brought over Space Pirate Captain Harlock in Japanese with English subtitles on television when it was uh, it was broadcast on a UHF station um, in out of Hawaii and then distributed to a few local um, like like Asian networks, quote unquote, um, stuff targeting usually a Japanese audience in I, I think Chicago might have gotten it at some point, but I know uh, New York and San Francisco definitely did. No, but that, that's that's such an interesting. But like what uh, Daft Punk were saying when they were being interviewed was, you know, they grew up with stuff like the Galaxy Express three nine and Captain Harlock, and and Matsumoto's work in general has been distributed just around the world. There is a there is a universal capacity to his work that that even other Japanese animation doesn't seem to seem quite seem to have. Um, even even if America was honestly pretty late to the party on Japanese animation, like we still got a lot of his stuff. Even, even contemporaneously, which is why I, I really do think they kind of made the perfect decision because even oldsters who maybe weren't super familiar with anime could see Interstellar and be like, hey, that looks like Star Blazers or, um, hey, that looks like Space Kateers or Dangard Ace if you're a particularly geeky oldster living on the West Coast, uh, that sort of thing where uh, they, they would recognize the design work and that's... And, um, all that, or like they would have seen Captain Harlock on uh, on television under one of under the Harmony Gold, the, the Queen of a Thousand Years, or more likely they would have seen the the Vengeance of a Space Pirate tape as a kid, or that sort of thing. There were a lot of venues they could have been exposed to his work in some capacity, and then of course you know that um, Daft Punk as a very modern sort of band uh, at the time, even with their older older fashioned influences, they were they were sort of uh, very very popular with the youths, or so I've been told. They they attract this newer audience and sort of bring it into contact with Matsumoto's work. So I think there's a really good symbiotic relationship between this film and uh, the the album it's ostensibly promoting, introducing them to older work and introducing fans' older work to newer material. It was uh, yeah, Daft Punk was quite a hot band back in the day. I think they're one of the few outfits that uh, appeared within my my short lifetime thus far that people will call legendary if you ask them. And it's it's a fantastic thing that they brought Matsumoto to new audiences and gave us this, you know, wonderful collection of music videos made into a movie. Yeah, they were a, such a big deal ever since shortly after I was born. It's really bizarre rewatching this now knowing that the epilogue has come out and that the band has the two members have parted ways. And I I can't. I can't believe it's. It's such a strange thing going back and watching, uh, the, you know, their best movie made out of their best album, because it begins with one more time, and there won't be another. <sighs> Plus, the movie is Interstellar four five. You know, four fives in sequence, and Daft Punk didn't even release five studio albums. Something about this just feels sad. Christ, you're making me feel depressed, Austin. <laughs> I remember. I remember the first time I ever saw the uh, anything from this movie. Uh, there used to be this bowling place by my house called uh, Brunswick Zone. They're technically still Brunswick Zone, but they've been renamed to Bolero because of some hipster shit that happened in 2014. Mm-hmm. And they had this event called Cosmic Bowling, where after a certain hour, uh, they would turn off most of their lights and only turn on black lights. And the whole place 
had all of this stuff that would light up under these black lights, sometimes including the bowling balls. And they would pull down these TVs, and I couldn't find the company that did this for them, but play the same loop of music videos for several hours. And they would play the, the two music videos, the one more time, and then directly after Aerodynamic. And the first time I saw this, I thought that it was an actual cartoon I could go find, like, like a series that I was going to watch. And it was so transfixing. I remember it caught my eye and it distinctively captured my imagination so much. And I went home and I tried to figure out more ways that I could listen to one more time over and over again. And it was such a big deal. I I have this computer scientist, local guy, his name's Justin Dieters, and I would torture him for years uh, because whenever he'd bring up Daft Punk, any of the names of their albums, I'd lean in and be like... Is that the one with aerodynamic on it? Regardless if it was he was discussing Discovery. I just I have a long history with this album and specifically, you know, not not watching this movie. I suppose the music videos from this movie have been plastered throughout my life at parties and anytime somebody wants to put on something from Discovery. And ah, uh, I'm happy that they had this stage in their career where they ma- they made it because I was not as much a big of as big of a fan of Human After All or random access memories. This is sort of golden era Daft Punk for me, and, and Daft Punk is now this came and went legendary band, and I'm, I'm happy that they, they did music videos with Spike Jones and other huge directors, but this is sort of the piece of Daft Punk visual content in my mind. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that that sentiment, at least. Because like, I do like a lot of their other music videos. Uh, there's that um, one for a track off Homework that's quite good and that sort of thing. Um, there, are, there are good Daft Punk music videos, but I think uh, the stuff from Interstellar so thoroughly eclipses basically everything, uh, everything else. The director of this movie um, is uh, Kazuhisa Takenoichi, and he is uh, he's just sort of a Toei lifer. He mostly does episode direction and... Um, a, he did a uh, handful of um, their movies, like directing, um, like Dragon Ball movies, like not proper, quote unquote, proper features, like a Dragon Ball film, that sort of thing, a One Piece film. Um, but he also directed the hit OVA, Vampire Wars. Uh, Vampire Wars is a terrible OVA. It's not good at all. Um, Wait, it's it's OVA. You don't say over. I thought it was over. No, you you don't say that. That's a different <laughs> thing. Oh. You can call it Ovo if he wants. That's fair. I have a buddy who insists on calling it an OAV still, because um, it used they used to be interchangeable, but now OAV means something very different. What's what's um, OVA mean? OVA means original video animation. OAV uh, used oh. to mean original animated video. Now it means original adult video. Oh. Um, Oof. I, I don't know why. Yeah, but no, his other big, uh, the, this director's other big credit is a is a stinky, not very good, hyper-violent sort of original video deal with a really great piece of cover art by uh, the late great Noriyoshi Orai. Um, oh, that's, I'm, I'm digging deep here, gang. Oh, that's about all I got uh, on the production. There, like, there's a lot of good, um, you know, Toei animators who worked on it, a lot of the, the standard uh, workhorse animators, but there's no... No one in particular that really, really stands out outside of obviously the the central collaborators here, here Leiji Matsumoto and um, and Daft Punk. Um, it very much feels like they they guided this picture more than the director or anybody else really. 
and I don't think it would be nearly as good. Like, I'm, I'm, it's hard to imagine this film being scored by anything other than Daft Punk music, because um, I think it would be much, much lesser for it, um, despite my affection for it. And it's it's very simplistic narrative, that sort of thing, or yeah, straightforward sort of narrative, not simplistic. It, it would not be very good without Daft Punk. It would be all right, but <laughs> I probably wouldn't have rewatched it kind of thing. It's, but. it's sort of a mind-blowing, like a huge task to make a coherent movie to the album discovery because discovery varies so greatly between songs it harkens back to totally different genres of music you've got like hard rock and this like disco shit all existing on the same album it's it's like if you were to try to make a uh, animated uh, movie out of like fetch the bolt cutters or to pimp a butterfly <laughs> it's it's a daunting task and yet every scene, the visuals feel like they perfectly match up with the music, except I suppose maybe in your opinion, Verdi Quo, which I don't share that opinion. I think Verdi Quo is just this like wicked lengthy odyssey where everything's going crazy, even though I, I guess it is more of an ambient track. It's just because that particular sequence is trying to convey a lot of information to the viewer. I really like that song a lot. I like it. Oh, I do like it a lot. I, I'm just talking about more how it complements the, um, the the footage. Uh, and I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things where I may, if I rewatch it, I may feel completely different. Who knows? And I don't think it's bad, to be clear. I think it's just probably of them the least fitting, if that makes sense. There's a vaguely spoken of connection. Uh, this is referenced in a lot of sort of production write-ups about this movie, where uh, when they went to Matsumoto, who, you know, made made uh, Albator when they were children, uh, he, they, they were surprised that they got along so well because this is this, you know, legendary figure, this, this man whose like, work is really prolific and, uh, did, you know, uh, like a big, big person over in Japan and they didn't know if they'd be able to, like, you know, get him to do the movie with them. And uh, a lot of people write about how he uh, Matsumoto had really enjoyed French cinema and how that was, you, you know, their, their sort of way of bridging the gap. Uh, I found one particular source in a magazine that mentioned a, a, a specific movie that he brought up. Uh, in case anybody's curious, uh, when Matsumoto was in a slump one time, he went and he watched... Marianne de Machonese, uh, Marianne of My Youth, the 1954 movie that was directed by Julien Duvevier. And uh, so apparently, you know, that was Matsumoto's fucking joint. That was his breathless, in case anybody wants to, you know, ever see if they can cure themselves out of a slump the same way Matsumoto did, if they're trying to draw manga, I guess. Yeah, no, Marianne, um, Marianne or Marianne of my youth, um, the, the lead actress in that film, who's actually a, a German woman, was the inspiration for all of his female, um, his female, I guess we have really all of his female uh, character designs. Marianne Hold. What? That random Franco-German uh, co-production was was what influenced these women? Yeah, Marianne Hold. Um, you notice it, I think it's mostly in the nose. Her nose is a little bit um, longer and the, the, the way the bridge... Um, is more defined than most. Um, that's that's really where it stands out um, for me. Anyways, um, yeah, he just fell in love with this woman. And actually, the uh, the name part of the name of the film, uh, Marianne of My Youth, is is partially what inspired the name of the Harlock film, um, Arcadia of My Youth. Uh, yeah, you just like, and that was in nineteen eighty some odd. Yeah, nineteen eighty. I want to say maybe nineteen eighty two. Yeah, the, like that's how long he was holding on to that um, that film. It was such a big deal to him. 
wow. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Like if they if they'd seen that one, they, he would be able to just go on about it forever. Which it's always interesting seeing what what particular directors, sort of or um, artists, creatives, uh, glom onto. Because um, I think that's mostly what that movie's known for in the West is its uh, relationship to Lady Matsumoto more than anything. Wow. When you look at the sum of history, some of the things that were required to happen to bring about other events is kind of crazy sometimes. You know, you've got this French film from 1954, Marion of My Youth, and you also have Euro Disney was a big part in making this film happen. <laughs> you see, in 1993, uh, when Daft Punk was at Euro Disney, that's actually when they got their demo to the head of Soma Records or someone who worked at Soma Records. And that ultimately led to the release of Homework. So without Euro Disney, this movie wouldn't have happened. So I guess Euro Disney wasn't a complete failure after all. There you go. And it made an animated film that wasn't done by Disney. Even better. There we go. <laughs> yeah, just a pure circumstance that led to all this, or just like a single film that so thoroughly influenced someone in such a way that everything sort of dominoed uh, after the fact. So what you're saying is, is that it's Euro Disney's fault that Daft Punk broke up. In a way, yes. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. It's it's like how it's your mother's fault that you die someday. Yes. <laughs> I knew it. Anyway, we can blame Disney in some stretch of it. Uh, I'm down for that. Yeah, exactly. Fuck you, Disney. Yeah, bagooms. Uh, that's a sentiment we can all agree with. No, um, I, but uh, sort of getting back to the, the thesis, the film itself. Um, One of the things that I do like, and it is sort of melancholic going back to it, but there is, with a film like this, there is always one more time. You can always just put it on again or like a record, you know, you just put it on. I mean, you know, records, are they degrade eventually, but whatever. All of Daft Punk stuff is on CD. That, that is sort of a nice thing. I, I do like it because you could really, like thematically, you, if you just put this film on loop, it, it always, always opens with one more time or the end credits always one more time. So, yeah, you could always have one more time with Interstellar. One, one more time. time. God. I, I would like to eventually have, for the first time, see this film where it doesn't look kind of bad. Uh, apparently, uh, the uh, Secret Celluloid Society was screening this film, and uh, some people have said that they were screening it on 35 millimeter. And then I think when you investigate that claim, they were actually just screening it in digital. But man, if there, if I ever discovered that there was somehow a 35 millimeter print of this specific movie. I don't know how much I'd pay for it. I When I heard about the Marilyn Monroe sex tape, I was less excited than hearing there might be a 35-millimeter print of Interstellar 4-5. On God. You know, I'm sure there is. Mm. I mean, it had to have had... I, I'm confident it had some level of theatrical screening, despite being a digital film. A digital film that premiered on Cartoon Network here in the States? Yeah, but, it, like, um... That's a good point. Um... <laughs> well, I mean, dig digital animation for years was still like it, it's like the masters would have still been been uh, put put to film, like there would or there would at least be film masters of it. And I'm relatively confident they wouldn't just destroy those. What? Oh, it is Toei. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I myself sad again. So Daft Punk is a band composed of Thomas Bangalter and Guy Manuel Diomen Cristo, and uh, they met when they were attending secondary school, right? 
Uh, they formed an indie rock band called Darlin, and in a critique that called got, that got called Daft Punky Trash, and so they formed Daft Punk. Uh, their albums include Homework uh, in 1997, Discovery 2001, Human After All 2004, and Random Access Memories 2013. They didn't make it to five. They have a few movies behind their belt. They have DAFT, A Story of Dogs, Androids, Firemen, and Tomatoes. That came out in 2000. And a movie after this that is Electroma that came out in 2006. There's also a documentary about them that I think came out in 2015. In my opinion, Discovery is their best album. Uh, is, is, that, is that disputed by anybody? Does anybody nope. think that Discovery is not their best album? No, Discovery owns... About a week ago, I would have said Random Access Memories, but yeah, no, it, it's Discovery. About a week ago, you would have been wrong. I will admit when I'm wrong, and I was in fact wrong when I said that Random Access Memory, which is still a good album, don't don't get me wrong, but that's not their best album. I actually like Homework, and the Tron Legacy soundtrack's pretty darn... No, I like Discovery. I would say it's their best album, even even as someone who does quite enjoy Homework and even has uh, more affection than most, I fear, fe- or feel, for um, uh, Human After All. Yeah, Discovery is still probably their best, even as someone who uh, who likes all their studio albums and even, even some of their live stuff and that Tron thing, what they did. That Tron Legacy score is still probably one of the best, like, movie scores of the last decade. What they did to Tron is a pretty good summary of what they did to Tron. I don't mean Daft Punk. I mean that whole company that <laughs> made that whatever, what you, they you, did to Tron. Look how they massacred my boy. One thing that bears making brief remarks about is I forgot Daft Punk was in this movie. How'd everyone feel rewatching this and seeing <laughs> Daft Punk at the Golden Record show? Oh, I still love him. I, I, I just saw them and I was just like, oh, it's a nice little... Uh, Stan Lee-esque cameo. I miss them already. They put little words on the helmet. When, when the when the crescendals, when the award, this helmet says great as he's clapping his hands. And they do that. Their, their shoulders are all hunched. Like, they're kind of uncomfortable in their seats. Like, kind of a little bit too to- tight, but they're just happy to be there. <laughs> I still wish that this had been an animated series. I wish those two French bastards had made a cartoon show. Jackie Chan got one. Let's make the, the adventures of Daft Punk. The, good. the Beatles had a cartoon in the 60s, and the Jackson 5 had a cartoon in, I think, like, the 70s. They did. G- g- give Daft Punk, uh, g- give them their own cartoon. I feel like those are two very poor examples to use for why Daft well, Punk well, well, they, 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 they were musicians, they were bands that I, I felt it was an inappropriate comparison, but, but yeah, no, qual- yeah. like, quality-wise, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're bad. As much as I have, like, a, an affection for the Beatles cartoon. Oh, yeah, it's it's bad. It's funny bad, though. I'll give you that one. I, I don't need it to be great. I don't need it to be Gem and the Holograms, right? I just need it to exist. I love when he kicks over the plant. <laughs> uh, one thing I thought was an interesting contradiction was that this is a classic example of musicians making a movie about how the record industry is corrupt and backwards. You know... That, that, that was actually something I wanted to mention, but rewatching this uh, for the first time, and I want to say like a couple of years or so, uh, it's been a hot minute since I've seen it. Th- this time around, I, I really began to notice that there's kind of uh, an underlying message about like exploitation in the music industry. I, I kind of picked it up a little bit. I don't, I don't know how much of it was intentional, but uh, like appropriation of like other cultures in the music industry even. 
did anybody else kind of pick up on that one a little bit? I hadn't noticed it, but I can kind of see that. I took a more sort of magical viewing of that, that it sort of uh, glamorizes what musicians do uh, in a way by making them these aliens that are turned into humans and then forced to work for these damn record executives, except for the good one, right? Uh, that that musicians are sort of these, like, they can be these fantastic otherworldly beings. And that, you know, if you take them down to Earth and you force them into uh, the music industry and, and becoming exhausted by the repetition of constantly doing live shows and signing stuff, that you're taking something really grandiose and cosmic and cool and you're bastardizing it. I could not in my head make the uh, correction or sorry could not make the correlation with uh, a, a modern interpretation of uh, appropriating other cultures it, it might so it might just be a stretch but it was mostly just because i considered the fact that oh yeah these are aliens and well they're they're at one point like literally whitewashed but i i don't know this it might just be a bit of a stretch no no i definitely get that with like the um the, the idea of like a, a, an alien culture that in theory would not be accepted. You make them, you you clean them up, you make them more approachable to your particular audience by, in this case, making them into humans as opposed to extraterrestrials and then have them perform their music. It, it's very, you know, um, Elvis singing very black music kind of thing. Um, and that's certainly there, I think. I don't, I don't think it's super intentional, but I, that's actually an interesting read on it. And that's that's one I hadn't super considered. When going in, I, I I wonder. Yeah, I do wonder how much of that was intentional, but I, I could definitely see it uh, in terms of because because that's always been an issue with the the music industry. You know, is yeah. is is stealing from uh, usually black artists or borrowing heavily without credit from black artists. Like a lot of early rock and roll again um, has its roots and uh, it black artists or or just straight up covers singing singing their songs or even even marketing black artists as white people that sort of thing if they if they were passing. But but again, I, I think uh, it, it's certainly it's the kind of thing where it doesn't draw. If it is intended, it doesn't draw enough attention to itself to be particularly cogent in the sense that this movie's wet, kind of wacky fun times throughout. But but yeah. again, but even then, I think any any argument like like what um, Austin was saying is like the the messaging about the record industry kind of falls apart when it's like oh it's not because of the record industry it's because of the evil guy who's making all the 5555 gold records <laughs> to make the world blow up or whatever um it's the kind of thing where if you think about it for more than 10 seconds it's like well that doesn't really make sense in terms of the larger thing but whatever it works in the moment yeah. that's i think what's most important in this case Barrel's human totally. outfit was the coolest it was <laughs> With the the really short jorts and uh, t- these, yeah tank top with the leather leather gloves yeah um, what a look yeah he look, he looks like kind of a kind of a dork on his homeworld a little yep. bit but but then he comes to I Earth think, and he got that drip God and he's super like he's ripped dude. I know dude's he awesome that buff. <laughs> look at that glow up for real God what a king are, are we talking about Shep oh no we're talking about Barrel. Barrel. Oh, Shep is also... okay, okay. <laughs> when Shep's ghost descended, I ascended. It was great. Oh, I love, I... I love how completely nude he grabs the Earl de uh, de Darkwood, just like putting him in a hug and giving a, giving a look to Stella. <laughs> but he, but he's just buck ass naked. <laughs> That'll do it. Um, what a play! That's like I, I know. Actually, some people comment on on Shep being kind of a weirdo, um, or like his relationship with Stella. I'm curious if any, if any of you have any thoughts on that. 
too. Like that sort of instant connection. I mean, it did seem sort of weird that like, you know, he's got this obsession with his poster girl and then he's <laughs> somehow got this tracking system on her and like just knows she's in danger with no other information there. I mean, that was kind of weird, but it's like, okay, cartoon logic. This movie is interesting because it's the anti-perfect blue, but he is perfect blue, you know? <laughs> so, like, you know, the, my my reading on it was um, considering how, like, you had the security forces who were protecting protecting them, and there there is a sense that, like, like Stella seems to, like, have an emotional reaction to seeing him, that there is some history, like, even if, like, if they aren't dating, like, they know each other in some capacity. My dude drove a guitar. <laughs> the coolest, the coolest goddamn ship I've ever seen in my life. You, you cannot convince me otherwise. On a, on another viewing, like it's not super clearly established, but one does get a sense that maybe they know each other, and it's more than just just this sort of pining after someone. Like maybe there was a missed connection somewhere. Or maybe they knew each other when they were kids or something. At least that was my read on it, particularly after seeing Stella's reaction to him. There was a sense of recognition which I, I might be reading too much into. And it's really not that important. Like, again, the film is very straightforward and a little bit goofy, but I, I know that seems to stand out to people sometimes is, is his sort of obsession. It might have been like, like, oh my God, you're the you're the guy who drives the space guitar. Yeah, true. <laughs> I know maybe, you. <laughs> maybe the space guitar is their touring van. <laughs> and that wasn't like planetary security. That was just, that was like their... Um, the regular security, just like concert security. I mean, the first the first time we see him, he's got like space vacuum and he's doing space vacuuming. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of character in that intro that I really appreciate for a series. Like he as cool as they work, as they uh, make Shep at the end of it. He's, he's depicted as sort of a, a silly guy at the introduction, um, which I like. I appreciate Dude's a total fanboy, too. Yeah, just a, a goofus <laughs> who, who really likes Muzak. He really likes Daft Punk. I don't know, man. I, You know, if if you're going to be in space and you're going to take the time to vacuum, I think that's what emphasized that he was a good guy to me. <laughs> like, he cares about dust <laughs> in space. Va- vacuum in the vacuum. But no, this has been the um, Interstellar cast with uh, Ethan. Brandon! Austin, Joseph, I'm Tim, and this has been a train wreck. Take care. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.